Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. A traveling salesman knocks on a door, a five-year-old enters, drinking a scotch and smoking a cigar, and the salesman goes, excuse me, are your parents home? And the kid goes, what do you think? I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that equips you to win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from comedian Patton Oswalt. His new book is called Zombie Spaceship Wasteland. And coming up, filmmaker Spike Lee, our favorite gawker, smoking women, and allo, darling. Hello. <laughs> now, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing this. Chinese President Hu Jintao is in the U.S. Joe Lieberman will not run for a fifth term as Connecticut senator. This is one of the largest single-day operations against the mafia in the FBI's history. Now for something you haven't heard, we're speaking with Richard Lawson. He is staff writer for the website Gawker. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about at your dinner parties this weekend? I will be talking about a new jalapeno pepper that was scientifically created so we can have bigger jalapeno poppers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For yeah. those who don't know, a popper, that's like a cheese-stuffed jalapeno. Yeah, it's stuffed with cheese and then deep-fried. It's really good for you. And now that <laughs> we can have them even bigger. Dr. Tregeman won a day. Right. right. They're like the centrum of the fast food world. <laughs> yeah, and they and they, they called it the Halmundo, so it's kind of a portmanteau between, you know, jalapeno and mundo. Doesn't mundo mean world? Why, that's what I thought. So it's like the jalapeno earth, like an earth-sized <laughs> jalapeno. My question is, is it still a popper when you have to wedge it into your mouth? <laughs> <laughs> it's like jumbo popcorn shrimp or something. I don't, yeah, I'm not sure why. It sounds like an entree. Exactly. You have to cut it with a knife and fork. That's fascinating. Do you, do we have any idea how they did it? Did they like feed it yeah, they, rats so it would grow? They, basically, they bred a regular sized jalapeno pepper with bell pepper. So oh. I guess maybe it's less spicy too, which could be good um, if you're eating that much. Now all they need to do is cross like a an acid tablet with a frisbee, and <laughs> <Right>. exactly, <laughs> and we'll have just to... sort of gnaw on it during your meal. <laughs> Richard, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a clover leaf awoken by the sun on a chilly morning. But instead of dew, it's covered in booze. It's a very puzzled leaf that day. What's going on? It's dews. Uh, first, the history. This week back in 1908, the Sullivan Ordinance passed. Most folks at your dinner party won't know what it was. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. Before there were non-smoking laws, there was male chauvinism. Case in point, the Sullivan Ordinance. Named after the guy who dreamed it up, New York City Alderman Tim Sullivan, it made it illegal for women to smoke in public because it was, quote, unladylike. Not everyone agreed. At a hearing the day the law passed, a doctor said he'd rather see a law forbidding men from smoking near a woman. And a bunch of actresses said they'd prefer a speed limit for cars. That way, gals wouldn't have to run across the street, which they found unladylike. Those ideas didn't fly, but the Sullivan Ordinance did. And the next day, a cop arrested one Katie Mulcahy for lighting up. He reportedly exclaimed, Madam, you mustn't. What would Alderman Sullivan say? To which she replied, Well, I am, and I don't know. Katie couldn't afford the five-buck fine, so the court tossed her in jail, which everyone suddenly realized was kind of ungentlemanly. 
Two weeks later, the Sullivan Ordinance was revoked, and women were free to get just as many smoking-related diseases as men. Hooray? So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Abraham Hawkins. He is a bartender at Dutch Kills, which is in Queens, New York City. Abraham, you heard the history. What cocktail did that inspire you to make? Well, I'm no good at naming these things, but you can help me with that. That'd be great. That's fine. We can we can do that at the end. So what's in your drink? So in a shaker with ice, I will combine three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice. Okay. Three quarters of an ounce of honey syrup. The honey uh, adds a feminine air. Oh, I see. Um, it's nice to know that there's like a, you know, a little mild misogynism still lives. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just very <laughs> mild, though, I promise. <laughs> okay, go ahead. And what else is in it? Uh, a dash of bitters, because it seems as if people were a bit bitter about this ordinance. Wow, I'm glad you didn't say that was feminine. That would have, that would <laughs> yeah. that could have been trouble. No, mild. I told you. Oh, okay, I see. And uh, go ahead. An ounce and a half of blended scotch, and half of an ounce of Isla scotch to add a little smokiness. Oh, I for see. For obvious reasons. On the rocks or anything. Serve it up, no ice. All right. So no name for this drink. One of my greatest failings. As a bartender, I don't know how to name things. Well, since you have such like uh, an august, strong name, Abraham Hawkins, oh, well, thank you. you know, maybe you just take names for granted. I was hoping you weren't going to suggest that I should name it after myself. <laughs> well, the law is called the Sullivan Ordinance. Why not the Hawkins Ordinance for the cocktail? <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll take that. But you do let women in your bar there, Dutch Kills. Absolutely. We uh, even let them smoke, but they have to do it outside. Man, Brendan, times change. Thank goodness. It's- well, yeah, kind of. When I was in high school, actually, kids were allowed to smoke. When was that? They had, you don't have to tell me. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> there was a smoking area outside for students, and in the winter you would see them out there in like zero-degree weather between classes. That was totally acceptable. And, and now in high school, you're lucky if they don't make you wear a helmet when you're playing badminton or something <laughs> like that. You're totally... Different times. Folks, you can look back with nostalgia on past episodes of our show. They're all at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is filmmaker Spike Lee. He's published a new coffee table book looking back on the making of maybe his most celebrated movie, Do the Right Thing. And Spike, welcome. How you doing? Very well. So this movie comes out in 1989. Amazingly, some of the people in our audience were barely born at that point. If you could uh, give us a synopsis for the people who don't know this movie. Well, I don't want to really get a synopsis, but I think more as important is that people forget when this film came out, many top critics predicted that this film would cause race riots all across the country because what my character, Mookie, did in the film. I think it was David Demi was one of the big critics. Joe, I forgot the other guy's name. Joe Klein. Joe Klein. Newsweek, I believe. Yeah, those guys have never owned up to it, ever. I remember, I remember the David Demi quote, pray to God this film does not play in your neighborhood. So consequently, there was a significant part of the white audience who was scared and waited to see the film if they did <laughs> on VHS, which is a, which is a shame. Why do, what do you think they saw in it that they were so afraid of? Black people running amok. <laughs> <laughs> to answer my own question from earlier, it is about, you know, a day in the life of this block in Brooklyn that, that ends in a race riot. Well, I wouldn't really call it a, a, a race riot. I just think it's a riot. And the biggest fallacy is that Mookie started the riot. He throws a garbage can through his white bus, Sal's window. The riot starts when the NYPD 
murder Ray Rahim in the infamous chokehold. For me, as a creator of the piece, that's what starts the riot. Why do you think people seem to overlook the fact that a black character dies, then Mookie throws a garbage can through a window? Somehow the garbage can through the window is what people focused on. Well, when I'm reading reviews lamenting the loss of white-owned property and never once mentioned the loss of life, right away it tells me they put more value on white-owned property than they do with the life of Ray Rahim, who most would consider a thug walking around, you know, in a big boombox. Now, in the defense of critics, Radio Rahim is a character. He has very few lines. You don't know a whole lot about him. You get a whole bunch of scenes with Sal where he's talking about how much he feels connected to the neighborhood and he's constantly talking down his extremely racist son. People identified with him more. I totally disagree. I think that guys like Ray Rahim are scary <laughs> to white audiences. I mean, they'd rather see black guys like in uh, Drive Miss Daisy. And Driving Miss Daisy won the Oscar for Best Picture the year your movie came yes. out. I can tell you're over it. I'm not, I mean, it's, look, Drive Miss Daisy is not being taught in universities and colleges all over the world. The class is about do the right thing. All right, I have two uh, questions that we ask everyone on this show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Mm. Why did Mookie throw the garbage can through the window? You kind of brought that up yourself, though, this time. Yeah, I get asked it all the time. I can imagine that that's a tough one to answer because, you know. It's not tough at all because nobody black has ever asked me that. <laughs> really? Never. They're living as a black American in this country. They know what it's like. Last question that we ask everyone on the show. Tell us something we don't know. Well, not too many know that I'm a professor at NYU. Uh, I graduated from the New York University Graduate Film School. I've been teaching there as a professor the last 15 years. And the last six years, I've been the artistic director. I did actually know that. Well, you're on the money. But maybe we can end with something that I learned from your book that I didn't know. Our nation's president went on his first date with Michelle Obama to do the right thing. That's a true story. Yeah, but really? I mean, it just doesn't seem like a date movie to me. It was for them. Their first date. As I said in the book, if Barack had taken Michelle to see Drama's Days instead, she would have dumped him after that. <laughs> We gotta go. I still remember watching that movie. That was very cool. Indeed, and we've got more of that interview at dinnerpartydownload.org. You know, what? I'm still looking forward to that documentary that he's been working on for decades. I have not heard about it's this. Called Spike Lee Watches the Knicks. <laughs> it's like this avant-garde. <laughs> it's just him with different hats watching them lose. <laughs> it's epic. 1989, Ladies and gentlemen, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Yes. Thanks to Jackson Musker, Ravi Carmen, and Ellen Gettler. And now we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or coming home from this weekend's dinner parties. The band is called Hello, Darling. Hello. Stop it. The song is called If Loneliness Was Art. Bon appétit. You've been on your own as long as I recall. If loneliness was art.
Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. What are you doing? I'm making a martini mundo. Can I have one? Sure. Do you have a bathing suit? Yeah. 